Yo, yo, everybody. Welcome back to the Science of Flipping podcast. I'm your host, Justin Colby. And if you are watching this on YouTube, and I encourage you to watch this on YouTube, you will see I am with Mr. Jack Bosch. How are you, pal? I'm doing exci- I'm doing great. How are you, Justin? I'm excited. Doing good. So I have you on because over the last you know year to two years, we've been a part of each other's circle here. And you do something totally different than I do in the real estate space. And you really heavily focus on land, multi-units, etc., where I tend to focus much more heavily on single-family homes. I just did buy a storage unit, but as a whole, I'd stick to single-family homes. But I wanted to have you on, excited to have you on, because I want to talk about land. I, I know it to be true. It is a great asset class for wholesaling and flipping, and, and it can lead to a lot of money uh, to go build wealth through real estate, which I know you both you and I heavily agree. That's why everyone should be in real estate. And so, dude, let's, let's jump into this. How did you just take what I think would be the popular avenue, which would be single family homes? Why did you get into land? What drew you that direction? So what drew me in that direction is, uh, it's a great question is, uh, is, well, first of all, a coincidence, but, um, wasn't really coincidence. We stumbled into it because we were in a particular situation that perhaps resonates with the audience well. And that is, we, I, uh, we had a job. I had a job that I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And I, had, and I was traveling 100%. I couldn't quit my job because I was an immigrant to the United States. Uh, still am an immigrant. Now I'm an American citizen, so I'm settled here. But uh, I was an immigrant from the United States and my work visa was was attached to my company, to the company I worked for, not my company, the company that hired me that I was an employee with. And uh, so if I would have, so, so, so when looking at houses, I, at least at the time, I know there's virtual house flipping and other things around right now, but now, but didn't exist back then. Um, at that point, I, we tried to make house flipping work, but we came from a different country, didn't know the language, didn't know the terminology, didn't know the building style, didn't know what it cost to us uh, to repair a kitchen, a bathroom, a, a, I don't know, a roof, a foundation uh, and all this kind of stuff. So it was overwhelming, like let's say house flipping was like too complicated. And even if you take it a step further into fix and flip, it was just not possible because I was gone. I was leaving Sunday night, Monday morning. I would take a plane, go somewhere, uh, be five days at a customer site as a software consultant, come back Friday night, completely exhausted. So there was no time to meet with contractors. There was no ability to supervise anyone. There was no ability to, 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 to work with anything. So fix and flip was just not possible for us at a time, given the level of knowledge, money, and experience we had. So we basically tried to make a house wholesale work early on, but we just also freaked out because we, we got it all wrong. We estimated everything wrong. So we moved to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing until through the concept of tax delinquent real estate to people that don't pay their property taxes, we basically attended them some tax auctions and we were and, and, and we were outbid again. We failed again. So we failed and failed and failed and failed in real estate. We were, we were outbid by everyone. And, and then we, but then we thought we had a thought and that was like, well, if people don't pay their property taxes on, on all these properties, on all these houses on this land, why don't we just contact them directly? So we started direct mailing, uh, sending direct mail out to owners of properties that were coming up at, at tax deed auction and tax lien auctions. And, and to our surprise, people responded, quite a few people responded, 
but only the people owning land responded. Mm. Almost no house flipper responded. So uh, almost no house owner responded. So we're like, crap, what do we do now? What, what do we do with these pieces of land? And we basically said, you know what? There's got to be, I'm sure there's a way to sell them. Someone is going to want them, but we got to be really careful. So instead of offering like 70, 80% of market value or 60 or so, we offer like 10 cents on a dollar. We're like, mm -hmm. this thing is worth, or five cents on it. This thing is worth $8,000. It's all for 400 bucks. And to our surprise, people were accepting it. So our first two deals was an $8,000 property we bought for 400 bucks and we sold to $4, for $4,000 to the neighbor. And the second deal was a 40-acre parcel, which we bought for 500 bucks, and we sold 10,000 for $10,000 on freaking eBay. So and, I have and, so many questions out of the gate, and I know this is, this is partly for me because in my own marketing, I get land, and I just go, yeah. I don't know, next. Like literally, I just tell my team, I'm like, guys, we focus on single family, like next, yeah, that's, right? That's so I should call doing, you. But the but, nice thing was that that by doing those deals, we realized we don't have to be at the property because it's land. We right. don't have to estimate repairs because it's land. We don't. Uh, we, so how do you estimate value on land? <laughs> that would be one question I think a lot of people are going to have. Exactly right. So uh, so we we figured out fairly early, but then uh, and the, the easiest way to estimate there's five ways to estimate value, and uh, none of them requires you to be on the property. <clears throat> well, that's a little bit different than on the house house side because even if you in the houses you do comps and you compare like well there's a house three house three doors down that's old that has three bedrooms two bath that's sold for three hundred fifty thousand dollars and there's another one the other direction five houses down that's sold for three seventy well mine is going to be worth that but you have to take the condition of the house into consideration right if it's if if these are nicely remodeled and yours is a 1950s house that hasn't been updated since it was created, since it was built, you got a different situation. Well, that falls away in the, in the land side. But with that said, we're still using the simplest way to, to, to estimate the value of a piece of land is, well, what have other similar pieces of land in the vicinity sold for? So sold comps, it's exactly the same thing. Zillow offers, offers that, you go on Zillow, instead of selecting houses, you select land. Instead of you select sold, you select in the last, uh, let's say 180 days or up to one year. The beautiful thing about land is that overall prices don't move as fast as they move in the house world. So you can go back all the way one year and you still can see, uh, you can still use those as a comparable. So you look at in the last year, which piece of land in the vicinity is similar that sold for or what did they sell for? And you got your sold comparables. If that doesn't work, you can also use what's called listed comparables. Like there's some states like Texas that are so-called non-disclosure states. In those states, <coughs> you actually don't have, as a seller, you don't have to disclose what the property sold for. So therefore, Zillow, which pulls from the public records information, doesn't have that information. So if you go on Zillow and you look for sold properties in Texas, you're not going to find a whole lot. Well, you find what's sold, but you don't, know, you don't find how much it's sold. So then you go simply on Zillow, you switch a drop-down box to, to list it. Because here's the thing, do the brokerages know what these properties sold for? Mm -hmm. Yes, they do, because they listed them and they sold them. They just didn't, didn't announce it to the city. They didn't, they didn't uh, submit that number to the county when it was recorded. So as a result, the brokers know, and they're not just going to go, Oh yeah, let me see this property. Let me list it for a million dollars when it's really only worth 20K, right? They're not doing that. Right. They know that properties are worth 20K in that area. 
So what they're doing is they're going on that market and they're pushing the envelope a little bit and they're listing that for 25K. Or if it's worth 100, they're listing it for 110, 120K. So what you do when you switch to listed comps, you simply go take what, again, you have a five-acre parcel outside of town. There's seven other five-acre parcels in that same area listed for an average of $110,000. You just take that, you drop it down by like 10, 15% to like 95, 100K, got your value. It's as simple as that. It's not hard. Um, depending on what infill lots, you value those a little bit different because an infill lot, the situation that you have is that you have a street, 35 houses, one empty lot. There are no comps. So what you got to do in that case, you got to do what appraisers do. And appraisers, when they appraise a house, they allocate about usually in a normal price range, let's say today about four or $500,000 houses, around nation of nationwide in the bigger cities that's a good average of what a house is worth like worth um it's actually not the house that it's worth four hundred thousand dollars the how the the land is worth about 20 to 25 percent of that total package and the house is worth the difference do you, so do you find that to be true because you, you're the expert so i know phoenix very well for this one model i've yeah. done a lot of land infield land deals in phoenix and I've, I've always contracted them about 25 cents on the ARV. So if the, the, after the home is built and they want to sell the, the home for 500 grand, I would go in and pay about a buck 50 for that land because yep. the builder would do the rest, right? So I would buy it at 25% of the ARV, if you will. Do you find that to be true uh, basically across the country? Yes, but... It depends on what the actual value of the houses in the area is, what the resale value is. And that number of 20 to 25% can go up once you're going to the luxury segment. Like, for example, there's a there's former baseball pitcher, Randy Johnson. Uh, when he, 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 pitched, he pitched in Arizona, where I live too. I um, mean, you're in Florida now, but I, uh, you used to be in Arizona. Um, and in Paradise Valley, which is like the Beverly Hills of Phoenix, he had a 10-acre parcel with a 15,000-square-foot house, and he sold that thing for $10 million. Well, if you, if you sell that for $10 million, it doesn't cost, or actually, he wanted $15 million for it, if I'm not mistaken. He wanted $15 million. I don't know what he ultimately got for it, but that was the asking price. If you sell something for $15 million, it doesn't cost $13 million to build that house. Right, right. It costs, if it's a true luxury property, it might cost... Seven million to build that thing, right. right? If it's like all kinds of construction thing and basketball courts and and gold statues and, and rivers and flow and, and you name it, all this kind of crazy stuff. Well, in that environment, the land is worth easily fifty percent of that property. If you go on the other side of the spectrum, if you have like the the bad part of town, <clears throat> where houses only sell for one hundred fifty or two hundred grand. In that, in that area, you cannot take 20, 25% for the land value because, because the builder, need, the, the, the calculation works the following way. Basically, the way it works, uh, the, the, the way this, the, why this really works in the $500,000 neighborhood is that if you put $150,000 for the land, there's $350,000 left for the builder to build a house and make a profit. So if the builder puts a 2,000-square-foot two, house on there and the builder knows what they're doing and they're building that house for, for $100 a square foot, then the builder puts $200,000 into the actual structure. 
Then they have higher, they have the financing cost, which is perhaps another 25 grand. Then they have a realtor, which is another 25 grand. And then uh, they have $250,000 in it, plus $150,000 for the, for the land. So in it for $400,000. And if they're selling for $500,000, they're making $100,000 on that deal, which is a 20% total return of the $500,000. Most builders are happy with that return. If you have a lot, if you have a, if you're in a neighborhood where the average house only sells for $200,000, these numbers just don't work anymore because the house still costs $200,000 to build. And then there's no money left for the land. There's no money yep. left for the builder. There's no money left for the realtor. There's no money left for the financing, right? So in that particular case, as soon as you drop below about $300,000, the ratio goes down and the land is only worth perhaps 10% of it, if that, and if it drops below like 250, the land value is more a nominal value. I found it hard to find the piece of land in the city that's worth less than 20 grand because it's just, it's 20 grand worth to somebody, even if they just use it to park their RV on there, to, uh, to park some cars on there, to expand their backyard or to hold it for future use. I think we're getting a deal right now for like either five or seven grand, a land deal just like this, because the, the, builder would have to sell around 250 grand yeah so the land really we're just like i don't know maybe we'll pay five grand for it because essentially it's going to cost the builder give or take 150 to 200 grand to build it right so yeah um we're doing a deal just like by the way there's some there's a thing you can go contact something like um habitat for humanity and you can donate that lot to them or you can Mm -hmm. sell it to them because they have funding and then they'll go and get a community project together and build a house for a local income person. Or even if you donate it, there's some tax loophole that, <laughs> to my knowledge, says that if you donate a piece of land, or in this case, a piece of land, to a charity that is in the same business of, of the product that you actually give them, so in the land business and Habitat for Humanity is, you can not only write off what you paid for the lot, you can actually write off what the land is worth. So if they estimate, if they give you a valuation and say that land is worth $50,000 and you paid five for it, you get a donation receipt for $50,000 and that might save you fifteen or $20,000 in taxes. So you basically get, you paid five grand for it, but you get $20,000 in taxes back at the, at the end of the year. It's kind of a cool little thing. Absolutely. So the other question I would have now that we talked about the infill lots, <laughs> I, was, I have a buddy who's looking at like 40 acres, right? So it's obviously there's a lot of land around how do you work with something like that? Right. Cause to me, that is a, you know, subdivision play. Then you'd probably want to have the buyer first to figure out where they would want to buy it. How do you look at like larger land pieces than just like, let's say a quarter acre infill? I love larger land. I'm glad you asked that. I'm lo- I love larger pieces for it. There's two kinds of larger pieces. There's two, there's one is like right on the fringe of town, uh, right at the at the edge of town, if you look at where is the last development end, and it's right there, that is obviously prime development land. So in that case, yes, it's worth uh, to potentially uh, go through the entitlement process um, if you can afford to buy it. But in that case, you would actually have to buy it, or you have to buy, at least tie it up long term with a with a seller for like a year or two years, because uh, most developers don't buy the piece of land unless they know that they can do with it what they want to do with it. That's right. That's an important kind of statement. Like you don't just go and put a million dollars in a piece of land and then hope you can develop it. 
That's the fastest way to lose money. You go lock it up for as long as it takes in order to get the proper city permits to do what you want to do with it. And then you go buy it. Or in that case, once you have that, once you have that in writing, you go sell it to a developer who actually does it because now you have de-risked the deal. You have taken all the risk out of it because the city already told you that you can do what you want to do with the land. That's a game that's typically a more advanced game. So guys like you, perfect. Yeah. Our typical student that when we teach this land flipping, our typical student comes to us as a professional that already been successful in something that perhaps mid-level management or something like that. They're sick and tired of being sick and tired of working 60 hours a week. They don't have much real estate experience or they tried house flipping in there. They don't want to do it. They focus. Uh, we, we steer them perhaps not... We, we don't necessarily ask them to do a deal like that right at the beginning because those can be very, very complicated. Instead, often those, those students focus on the second kind of 40-acre parcel. And the second kind of 40-acre parcel is a parcel that's like an hour away from the city. So it's more recreational land. It's like a mini ranch, if you want to call it. And those things are on fire right now. Mm. Like they're on fire right now because there's four actual pieces uh four actually things that i'm that are playing towards it right now that that makes really land buck the entire kind of development of real estate house prices are slowly going down right now land prices are not demand for land is as high as it's ever been one of a friend of mine that's a coach uh, st coaching students of us a former co student of us that now does like two three hundred deals a year just sent me a message uh, yesterday saying like hey do you see what we see like land is on freaking fire. 2023 is better than 2022. And mm. 2022 was better than 2021 and 2020 and so on. We're in a constant upswing in land. Because land right now, for the first time ever, is driven by four different market forces that are actually separated from everything else. Market force number one. I don't know if I should go into those quickly. But market force number one is that COVID has changed the mentality of the American psyche really people in u.s covid had a bigger impact on the united states some people say than world war ii mm. in world war ii i mean lots of people lost their life and lots of people went out fighting and things like that and and the soldier's life was changed but the ones left behind their life their day-to-day -day life didn't change right COVID made their life change for two full years in some states. They were locked in. They couldn't go. They couldn't go on the playground. They couldn't go uh, go uh, to family reunions. They couldn't go. And what it, what it created is a huge desire to have more space. Well, yep. land meets that. Yep. You look at RV dealerships, they're still to this day. RVs are flying off the shelves. It hasn't changed. That, that it's a, it's a, and that's an effect that I think will stay with us for their lifetime. It has yeah. changed the way people think about life. Number two is also simplified life for a lot of people. They're like, hey, I, I, I want to work from home. Well, that's yeah. the second thing. As of last week, I looked up a statistic. <coughs> there were still 48, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm nursing a cough here, but 48% um, of all people in the United States still work from home. Mm. That's over 75 million people in the United States. That means that now they, they want to have space and they can actually, that, does, that means they can now live where they want to live and work where they want to work. Now, let's add the third thing to that. The third thing to that is that um, processes like, or, or companies like Elon Musk's Skylink now make it possible, which is basically a network of satellites all around the world, make it possible for you to, to literally have 
high-speed internet access in places where up till a few years ago you didn't even have reception. So now that, now add to that on top of it, technology like solar becoming more mobile and more effective that you can put solar panels on an RV now and you can be out there. So now you literally, you get an RV, you buy yourself 40 acres an hour away from town, you head out there, you don't just need to head out there for the weekend, you can out there, head out there for two or three weeks, yep. camp up or build a house over time, build a cabin up there. You can head out there. Homeschooling is huge, right? Kids yeah. are homeschooling their kids now. Families are homeschooling their kids now. Guess what? Now the world is your oyster. You can yeah. now take your RV. You can go out on a piece of land. You can put up your solar panels. You connect to Skylink. You have what you need. You can work from there. Nobody cares where you work. Our entire company, 75 people, is 100% virtual. We have yeah. team members that in summer, they take off, they fly to Madrid, and they work from Madrid. Or from Barcelona. Which is great. Which is yeah. great. Everyone should ask Jack for a job. Let's put it that way. So I have two really important questions I know my listeners want to know because I want to know. First, where do you pull these lists? Where do we find them, right? If you were going to say, Justin, you need to do this. Go pull this list from this place. Where, where would you tell me to go do that? Well, the beautiful thing about this is that when we started, we started with tax delinquent real estate. So people haven't paid their property taxes. Shortly afterwards, we realized that we are leaving 97% of the market on the table by only going after tax delinquent people. Okay. Yes, tax delinquent people are a little bit more motivated than the non-tax delinquent people. But we realized that there is hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who have bought these properties 20, 30, 40 years ago or they inherited them in the last few years and they don't want to pay property taxes anymore. They don't care. These properties, by the way, are not, they don't have mortgages on them. Almost all of them are free and clearly owned. They have been in the family for a long time. They have been passed through to the next generation. And for whatever reason, time and circumstances, the owners just don't want them anymore. So we got this humongous market of free and clear properties where the emotional attachment is zero and people just treat it like a garage sale item. And the garage sale item is like, hey, that treadmill that cost us $2,500, let's get it out of the house. Oh, you offer me 200 bucks for it? Yes, take it, leave it. It just takes up space, take it away. Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing. So we're not looking for the non, we're not looking for the motivated sellers. We're actually looking for what we call the non-wanters. The motivated sellers give you a piece of land for 60, 70 cents on a dollar. The, mo- the non-wanters give it to you for 10, 20, 30 cents on a dollar. And that's a completely different game because it allows you to turn around and sell those things at half half market value with a tremendous profit. Now, where do we get those? We go to the county or we go to data services. Right? We have a CRM that we use that our students can use that actually has a built-in data service. And um, we have identified, we like people that live out of state. We like people that own their land for a, lot of to- for a long time. But also we like people that just bought them because often they didn't buy them. They got them inherited. Yeah. Right? And then uh, we like them in a certain price range, right? We like, uh, we like certain three kinds of land. We like infill lots. We like one to 10 acre lots right in the outskirts of town. And we like 10 plus acres, more like an hour or two away from the city, those recreational lots. They have built in huge amounts of buyers. So it's very specific kind of land that we go after, but there's hundreds of thousands of them out there. And then we use a direct mail strategy, which has a benefit of being that being pre-scheduled. And the best part about this is that because nobody else does that, there's very little competition. So even though we only send out one letter and we in some cases get up to a 5% response rate. So I'm the last two questions were exactly that. How do you 
market to these owners of the land in his direct mail, correct? Direct mail. Now you could use texting and things like that, but uh, but most people that actually do that, they ultimately come back to direct mail because it just gets you the biggest bang for the buck. Do you know, you know, in the residential space when talking about single family homes, we're used to getting a pretty awful callback rate, right? I mean, we've gotten down to like the 30% of 1% callback yeah. rate. That's where the single family, what does it look like in the land space? So, so there's typically three kinds of counties. There's some counties that experience like hyper growth and so on. In those, you get usually a lower response rate and that might be around 1%. Okay. If you, in a good county, you should experience about a three to five, three to 4% response rate. Wow. No, no repeat mailings, one letter. That's and sometimes incredible. you get some crazy counties where you get 10% plus. So but where would you target when you, when you are talking about these areas of, of the nation, where would you advise Justin to go or anyone obviously, but I'm curious, like, where do I go do this middle America? Is that a better place for farmland or is it the outskirts of a city like Phoenix that you and I have lived so long in because the developers there, is it a combination of both? Do you want maybe, you know, when I coach my single family students, right, to wholesale and a flip, I would usually advise them to stay away from the bigger cities like Miami, New York, Phoenix, because of the competitive nature, because of the high cost, because of those things. I'm like, there's better markets, not easier, just better. What would you say in terms of land? So interesting that you mentioned farmland. Farmland is actually counterintuitive. People think like, oh, farmland would be great. But at the same time, farmland is the income producing assets for somebody. And they're not going to give that to you at 10 cents on a dollar. That's right. So we have actually very low success rate with farmland. There's a couple of people focusing on it. And you can find like somebody who's just willing to give up. And then you get that. But usually also farmland is highly leveraged. Because those farmers are usually not making, they're not raking it in. That's like right. unless you're a mega farm, you're living from the hand to the mouth. And it's one of the hardest, hardest businesses to survive in. So you take, you constantly take bank loans. So there's not much equity in those. So we're not focusing on farmland. <clears throat> we are focusing again on three kinds of land. First, the infill lots. So you can go into areas that are cities that are growing, but we don't like hyper growth. Because in hyper growth, like for in a hyper growth city, even the house flippers are buying land and actually building houses building. on it because they yeah. can't get enough in enough deals. Uh, so they revert it back to just buying land and building houses up from, they have crews. Like Phoenix. Right? Phoenix would be hyper growth, right? Wouldn't you say that that's more of a hyper growth market? No, Phoenix itself. But then as you go outside of these bigger markets, so if you go outside of Phoenix, there's lots Abendale of land. Abbeydale and Surprise. And even beyond that. that, like out in the desert a little bit, out, outside of Denver, Colorado, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, outside of, uh, of Chicago, Illinois, outside of uh, you name it. Uh, go, um, my, go, go what, an hour <laughs> out? So whatever, 50, 30 to... 30, 50 miles, because who buys those lots? It's actually th two kinds of people. Number one, it's the future retiree. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we have the people in their 50s. And unfortunately, statistics show that over 70% of the people in the, in the, in the mid-50s are one broken car, one medical bill, or one emergency away from being bankrupt. Yep. That's right. They have no savings. Well, look at that. In 10 years from now, these buyers are going to retire and have nothing to fall back on. So what happens is when you then get $1,500 in social security, you can't, live, you can't afford to live in the city anymore because the rent is going to be $1,500. Yep. So they can't do it anymore. So, that, so what they're doing is the smart ones are 
becoming students of us and learning how to build a multi hundred thousand dollar business. But the second, the second smart ones are what they're doing is they're actually going to see, okay, if I, if I can't afford to live in the city anymore, let me see if I can buy something outside of the city. Ideally that I can pay in monthly payments because we love selling our land with seller financing. When you get a piece of land, a $50,000 piece of land for 10 grand, and you can sell it for 50 grand with a $12,000 down payment, it's a pretty, it's a pretty no brainer deal because you're uh -huh. getting more as a down payment than you actually paid for the property. I would, so you so the, do it as a, as a double closing that you use the buyer's money to pay the seller and with no money out of our pocket. But those kind of then then you offer seller financing. Then you allow them to pay you 400 bucks a month for the next 15 years and then yep. paid you. And, and, and then they, once they enter retirement, they have a free and clear lot with utilities and they put a mobile home on there. And now they have a dignified retirement. So those are the first ones that buy this. And the second one that buy it is actually those same, what we call them COVID buyers. A lot of the people that say like, you know what? Have an IT job, work from home, programmer, internet marketing, whatever kind of people in different kind of things, HR, they don't have to be in the office. They're like, you know what? I don't want to live in a cookie cutter home in a master plan community. I want to have five acres, 20 minutes from town. Yeah. Right. And they Where have the you buy the lots and they pay them off and they, they sometimes they pay cash, sometimes they pay them off. So, so again, this is, this is where you go outside. So really any big market, any big you know, city in the United States, you go out like these 10, 20, 30, 30, 40 miles. That's the thing. And then the recreational part is 10, 20, 40 acres in a cool part of town. Again, within one to two hours away from a big city because your buyers of that recreational land are the people in the city with the RV. Yep. Yeah. And then lastly, to wrap up here, because we're a little short on time, where do you find the buyers? How do you market to them is what I mean. How right. do you find There's, those people? We, you, you can do many, many different things. Over time, you'll, you'll build up a buyer's list, a, a list of people that, that are on your list that you can just simply sell a good third of your properties to without putting them ever on the market. You can also sell to the neighborhood around because people that own there, many of them own because they love it and they want more. And, but the main area for to sell, particularly at the beginning, is to social media. So mm -hmm. we sell it to Facebook Marketplace, Facebook groups, uh, Zillow. Uh, we put it on Zillow. Right? Yeah. Uh, there's a website called landwatch.com. Gets 4 million people a month going there to buy land. And uh, so there's many, many different websites. It's its own little universe that has lots of places you can sell the property. Or you can simply hire a realtor and have the realtor sell it for you. I thought that was going to be your answer if I was being honest. But <laughs> the, the Facebook world makes a whole lot of sense with the marketplaces and the communities out there. Guys, this has been Jack Bosch. He is the guy to go to for this space, especially for me. Um, and so, Jack, why don't you let everyone know where to find you and what to get? Obviously, he has a great coaching program specific to this. So if this is an intriguing subject matter for you, I want you to make sure you're reaching out to him directly. But where can uh, people find you? Yeah, land is the best way because there's no tenants, toilets, and termites. So, right, that was a way we were able to make it work without having to know really much about real estate because you don't have to estimate repairs and you don't have to talk to contractors and any of that kind of stuff. It's 100% virtual. So how do people find us? Well, one time is I have a new podcast, which is actually called the Jack Bosch Show. And Bosch, by the way, is spelled like the washer and dryer or like the power tools with B-O-S-C-H. So there's a C in the middle. So the Jack Bosch Show, just uh, search that on iTunes or on YouTube. And number two, you can also go to Land Profit. Fun, like having fun, F-U-N, landprofitfun.com and find out more about what we do.
Dude, I appreciate you spending some time. I know you just came back from Europe. You're literally leaving tonight to go to Europe and you're spending time with me on my podcast. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.